welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Mariana here with my co-host Jonah. What's new, Jonah? Um, absolutely nothing. And I can <laughs> honestly say that grad school is pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's about all I have to report. Yeah. <laughs> you In two weeks, I'll... that's all I have to report. Yeah. Yeah, it has been two weeks. Yeah. So. Uh, so we, we, our intention was to record an episode every week, but um, something always comes up. And, and this last week, it was because I've been moving. Um, so that's what's new with me. Uh, we bought a house. It's an older house, but it's awesome. Um, it's right across the street from a trailhead. We have three stags that come in every morning and a doe that visits us every evening in our yard so that's kind of cool um anyway yeah so that's what's been going on so i've been really busy so we haven't had a chance to record until now um so yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i guess before we get into our topic our continuing our topic of poaching i just we're only going to do one um news highlight this week and i just want to do one real quick about this study that just came out you can find it on all about birds.org which is the cornell lab of ornithology's website anyways they just um published a study using or looking at um it is actually the first study ever looking at weather radar and how that can be used to count birds because recently that's been used to count migrating birds so you can get an idea of trends in the number of migrating birds and anyways it's some pretty cool graphics and stuff but basically the gist of it is that this fall which is this is currently happening right now we just had a big migration the other night um, I was I set up my spotting scope and was watching the moon, and you can just like see birds flying by in the middle of the night. Pretty cool. But anyways, um, about four billion individual birds will cross from Canada and fly across the United States to migrate south, and then four point seven billion will cross from the United States down into Mexico, wherever they're headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in the spring, it's like three and a half to two and a half billion birds that come up just because they have different routes. But yeah. anyways, they they found they were able to count all that from weather radar, which is amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, pretty cool study, um, and it's pretty cool. I think to just think like when we're getting ready to go to bed, there's like millions and millions of birds just headed south in a very dangerous and expensive journey and yeah. it's just amazing i'm obsessed with migration <laughs> yeah to um we've been um at, i've with this volunteer thing i've been doing taking kids up to the bird banding in bandolier um every bird that they band they check them for fat so they blow on their chest um so they they check their fat content um, and for anybody who doesn't know, birds have a, like a, a kind of like a pocket where they store fat um, for migrant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
So for those of you who don't uh, know, birds have like a pocket in their chest where they store fat for migration. Um, so anyway, that was cool. Um, yeah, I just did. I actually just went bird banding passerines for the first time last week. So I guess that's one cool thing that I've done. Oh, and yeah, yeah, the guy was the guy was showing me that um, mm-hmm. in a couple of the species we caught. It was cool. It was fun. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about today, so I guess we'll try to jump right in. Okay, so this is uh, part two of a poaching series we're doing. If you haven't listened to part one, the previous episode, go ahead and listen to that and then hop into this episode. So to define poaching again, just to remind everybody, it's the legal killing or taking of wildlife. Uh, More traditionally, um, it was or is the act of trespassing on another's land in order to kill or take wildlife um, because the first poaching laws were associated with land use. But your poaching can be either killing the animal or removing it from the wild um, illegally or, or the plant because plants too, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The plant trade is, is yeah. huge and mm-hmm. um, we aren't going to cover that here, but a lot of this stuff applies to plants as well, especially when we start talking about uh, trafficking, which we'll do in the next episode. Yes. Um, but this is, I mean, this is an industry that is like, that is what poaching is. It is an industry and it's hard to estimate exactly how much this industry is worth, but the UN's environmental program estimates it's anywhere worth anywhere between 70 and 213 billion dollars annually and it's that's like a big range just because it's impossible to calculate the um the worth of an illegal market or an illegal industry rather um and probably everyone in the world realizes and understands that poaching is a threat to wildlife populations but Something that people don't realize that in addition to it affecting wildlife, it also is a threat to social stability and national economies, which um, we talked about a little bit in the past, in the last episode, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in this episode. But I just want to say again, like we said in the last episode, that we're really generalizing a lot of this stuff about poaching because it's it's difficult to um actually rather it in each each situation is different um and you know poachers are killing or taking wildlife for a variety of reasons um well especially killing wildlife for a variety of reasons when they're taking it it's generally a couple reasons um Mm -hmm. but you know, these reasons that poachers might be killing wildlife is maybe for subsistence. That's just what they, how they get their food. The bushmeat trade, maybe they're retaliating because a carnivore killed their livestock or something like that. Um, or retaliating because an elephant destroyed their crops or something doesn't only apply to carnivores. And they might be doing it for commercial profit, which is what we're going to be talking a lot about today. Maybe just for sport because someone wants to whatever, have a snow leopard picture with a snow leopard or something like that for trafficking so that they can sell the wildlife, which that often comes with commercial profit, um, or because they're maybe trying to finance war or terrorism, um, which we talked about in the last episode as well. So again, if you want to 
learn more, get a background about poaching, um, go back to the first episode where Mariana did a pretty awesome history of poaching, um, which highlights how much of a social issue this is. Um, And really, it's just as much of a social issue as it is an ecological issue. Yeah, so picking up, we're going to pick up from the last episode where we gave you a little bit of history, and we promised to talk about uh, enforcement of poaching, as well as talking about the market that drives poaching. First, we want to give some stats that really drive home how big the issue of poaching is. Okay, so we'll start with rhino horn, which is the most expensive commodity in the world. And rhino horn can be sold for anywhere between fifteen and $30,000 per pound. Uh, and to compare that to gold, uh, gold is worth $20,000 per pound. So rhino horn can be about as much or even more worth about as much or even more than gold. Just to back up a bit, we're going to give a lot of numbers here um, because we talked last episode about uh, the the scope of this problem. Um, and we wanted to follow that up with some some more precise numbers so that you as our listeners can get an idea of how much of a problem this is. Um, one such number is 97.6%, which is how much black rhino populations have declined since 1960. That's a really astonishing number. Um, that's, I mean, it's almost a hundred percent. It's, it's insane. Um, how, how, and how quickly they've declined as well. Um, so actually tell us about this great African elephant census. Cause I was, I forgot to ask you about that. Yeah, this was a really cool um, endeavor that took place a couple years ago where they tried to count all of the um, African savanna elephants. Well, not count all of them, but count them in all the places that they exist um, almost. And um, so between, and they and they were able to, you know, calculate a lot of rates of decline and things over this census period. And um, so between 2007 and 2014, the savannah elephant population declined by 30%. Just 30%, but the entire population by 30% in seven years. Oh my gosh. Um, and that means that during that seven year period, roughly 144,000 elephants were lost, um, killed primarily to poaching. Um, and they, this whole census counted 352,271 elephants precisely in 18 different countries. Um, and this, they, they think that this roughly represents at least 93% of the total population in those countries. Um, and you know, with all these numbers, they were able to calculate that the current rate of decline in the entire elephant Savannah elephant population is 8% per year. Um, again, almost all due to poaching. So that's that's like going downhill really fast, and mm-hmm. I mean elephant the elephant populations have been like that for for many many years, um, and that's basically how we've got to these numbers now. So who knows what these rates have been in the past? Yeah, absolutely. probably similar or more so, but or more, yeah, um, especially in the seventies and eighties. Um, yeah. So um, remaining in Africa. Speaking of the African lion, 43% of the African lion population has been lost in 21 years. Um, So that's just another ridiculous number. It's just, that's a lot. Um, 
15,600 Grevy's zebra in the late 1970s and early 1980s declined to less than 2,000 today. And another astonishing number, of course, between 2000 and 2014, an average of two tigers per week were poached. um, And this number was based on seizures of body parts. That's an insane number, um, especially when you consider the state of tiger populations. Yeah, all these, I mean, I just picked these sort of randomly because they're easily available stats, but I think they're also some of the most striking just, um, you know, I feel like these days it's so normal. Just everyone knows, oh, animals are headed towards extinction and these animals are endangered because of poaching and stuff. But these numbers are like, are just so astonishing that when you step back, like, wow, 43% of the lions have been lost in 21 years. That's, that's within our lifetimes. And that just like the rate at which some of these, some poaching and some of these species has gone up like that is, is crazy. Um, this is crazy and tragic, really. Yeah. Anyways, um, so do you want to talk to us about the market? Yes. Um, so as we talked about in the previous episode, what began as a statutory crime um, several centuries ago, that is poaching quickly grew into an illicit and lucrative market in poaching and smuggling. So when we talk about the market, we're not talking about poaching for the sake of subsistence or protection of property like Jonah was talking about earlier, or even for rebellion. We're talking about poaching as a business. Um, and it is, as we've already said, it is, it is a huge industry. Um, so as a business, when we're talking about the demand for animals and animal parts, um, they can kind of be put into four major categories. These are general categories. Um, you can also just, um, further subdivide these categories, um, into more, but basically the demand for animals and animal parts has to do with social status. That's one, as we spoke a lot about, um, in the previous episode, um, speaking about the rise of the, uh, wealthy middle class and such. Another reason that people take animals, um, is for religion and superstition. Another reason is for culture and medicine. And of course, the exotic pet trade, which we will definitely be talking a lot about next episode. I'm just going to skim over these categories as we'll be talking about them more in depth on the next episode, where we'll be discussing the global wildlife trade. But for the sake of talking about the market, we need to first discuss the demand. So let's start with social status symbols. This is the largest factor. Um, This is the largest factor in poaching. So the largest demand comes from the need for social status symbols. So these symbols can include, or these symbols include many luxury items like jewelry, furniture, ornaments, menageries, which are collections, uh, as well as delicacy foods. Everybody's heard of shark fin soup, pangolin, caviar, uh, especially beluga caviar, tiger bone wine, uh, lots of delicacy foods around the world uh, that require the taking of wildlife, mostly from poaching, um, because these these are species that are protected. And of course, we have religious and superstitious beliefs. So globally, religious and magical religious ceremonies often require elements consisting of animals and animal parts. Uh, and of course, you can trace these practices from 
ancient civilizations to the immediate present. Um, and these include animal offerings to gods, um, the presence of animal parts on divination tables, things like that. Uh, oh, I, and I wanted to mention the snake handling sex in Appalachia. Um, these are oh, the, gosh. do you know those? Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The religious sex. Yeah. So, um, there's also, um, one thing that I learned about when I was in Zambia from my vulture friend that people in West Africa, uh, vultures are associated with like clairvoyance. Mm-hmm. And so carry like people carry vulture heads. Oh, wow. And like, and apparently they can see into the future because of that. So not only are vultures getting poisoned, but they're also getting directly killed because people think that they give you clairvoyance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of superstitions from, from the extreme, like vulture heads to the almost everyday common, like, uh, like rabbit feet even, um, which of Mm. course we know now are not actually made from rabbit feet, but were (laughs) historically, (laughs) um, so, and then of course there's, there are the cultural and medicinal applications, uh, which is a big deal. This, this is especially what's covered most in the news, especially when we're talking about traditional Chinese medicine and the use of animals and animal parts. Uh, so, uh, one, one such example are pangolin scales, which are used for skin ailments, among many other things. Rhino horn, of course, everybody knows about uh, the, the belief that rhino horns are good for ailments such as headaches, hangovers, fever, infections, even cancer. Uh, as some believe that rhino horn can treat cancer if you grind it into a powder and boil it in a water. We briefly spoke about the bear bile industry, which is just horrendous. Um, bear bile is used for liver and gallbladder afflictions. And here we actually have an, and oh yes, and I also wanted to mention the intersection between religion and healing. So we we have an intersection here between um, the religious demand and the healing demand, and there's always sort of um, a lot of superstition and religion involved with both of them. Uh, so, and of course, the final category I wanted to briefly talk about is uh, the exotic pet fixation. It's easy to blame Asian cultures for the poaching industry because we know about um, the high demand for animal parts um, in Asia. I mean, that's a real thing. So it's not we're not stereotyping. Um, But when it comes to things like exotic pets, that demand is concentrated here in the U.S. and in Europe. So we we have a lot of responsibility for that as well. And of course, we'll be delving deeper into it when we discuss wildlife trade. And there, of course, is, there's also an intersection here between social status and exotic pets, as in many uh, in many cultures, having an exotic pet shows that you have an elevated social status. So now that I've covered those sort of categories of demand, this is why people are asking for animals and animal parts. I want to talk about the market. So the market chain and the sort of syndicate structure that the market has. Um, so this the poaching uh, business, um, it can kind of uh, simplistically be described as a sort of linear hierarchy of power and profit. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. It's not exactly linear. Um, it's just that certain actors uh, tend to fill certain roles. Um, and by actors, I, just, I mean participants. So these actors are poachers, smugglers, sellers and buyers, brokers, 
and what I call the corruptibles. So the corruptibles are law enforcement agents, judges, anybody who might get in the way of the market and is bribed or paid to turn a blind eye, basically bribed to get out of the way. Um, So those are the corruptibles, which are huge players in this market as well. So now that we've gone over the actors, we'll talk about how the product moves from hand to hand. And we wanted to emphasize here that the product, the, the value of the product changes as it moves from hand to hand. So when it's taken from the field, for example, a, let's, for example, let's use a, a Burmese python skin as an example. Um, when it's taken from the field, the skin can be sold for $30 in an Indonesian village. But when it reaches um, the more elevated market, it can be, it's worth $15,000 as a bag from a fashion designer. And that's the same product. And this is, it's important to note that the value of the product does change. It increases as it moves to more elevated hands, moves higher in the sort of, um, I guess the power structure, it's, it's, uh, there's a better word for that, but as it moves higher through the, higher through the, chain. I don't like to use the word chain either, but, um, anyway, I just butchered that, but (laughs) so, (laughs) so, so, um, as I, as I've already mentioned, the the product first is first taken by poachers on the ground. Uh, and most of these poachers, as we talked about last episode are risking their lives to feed their families, to support their communities. Um, these are men and women on the ground, who make pennies to the dollar for what the product is worth. And they take these animals dead or alive. And from there, the smug- we have smugglers and sometimes the poachers and smugglers, you know, there's a fine line, a poacher can be a smuggler, vice versa. But um, then we have the smugglers who, uh, who tend to make more money per kilogram of product than poachers on the ground. So as I said, the, the value increases um, as it, as it changes hands and smugglers can be, uh, influential local people, a group of people organize, and they, a group of people, and they are, are often organizing the poachers and other smugglers. So this is where it gets really, uh, where the first, this is where it gets really organized. And they and smugglers are often the middlemen between the syndicate leaders and the poachers. So this is, I mean, this works like a syndicate, um, this entire com- community, if you will, um, of, of poachers. So then from the smugglers, as I said, they can often work as middlemen. We have a syndicate leaders. So the, the leaders of the groups, they provide the resources that their hired smugglers and poachers need. They'll provide guns, field vehicles, sometimes even food and lodging. So they will often lure people in to become poachers and smugglers with promises of resources, with um, promises of taking care of them, giving them food and lodging, things like that. Um, but that's that's not at all a sacrifice for them because they're, once the product reaches them, it's just worth so much more. Um, what'd you see? It's just a house sparrow at oh. my bird <laughs> But hilarious. I never see anything there. And I'm like, oh, it's a house sparrow. Oh, wait, there's a... <laughs> Oh uh, no, it's a house sparrow. <laughs> Jonah the birder. This is the birding life. Yeah. Uh, no, Always. That was really funny. I'm totally keeping that in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and these 
sort of syndicate or group leaders, the ones that are really organizing and, and providing the resources. They can be influential com- community entrepreneurs. They can be affluent businessmen or usually affluent businessmen, political leaders on every level, and even terrorist groups. Um, and so that's basically kind of a really reductive way of... Um, a really reductive list of all the actors in, in the poaching industry and how the product moves from hand to hand. And to further complicate an already complicated matrix, of course, none of this happens in a vacuum. I already mentioned the corruptibles who, by virtue of doing nothing, of turning a blind eye, aid and abet the industry. Um, and they receive money from this industry for turning a blind eye. Uh, there are also families or even whole communities who will support poachers and pug- bugglers who will support poachers <laughs> <laughs> who will support poachers and smugglers um, for the benefits uh, that their income can bring. So many poachers and smugglers, they provide financial support for their family members. They provide funds for community efforts. They, they'll fund schools, they'll fund churches, and they often become these influential community uh community members. And so when, when the community is receiving these benefits, they see more value in that than protecting wildlife. And so they will be, they will protect um, the interests of the poachers and smugglers because then that it protects their interests as well. And as we spoke earlier about how the value changes as it, as it goes from hand to hand, I also wanted to note that um, and we, we kind of alluded to this a little bit in the last episode as the availability of the product decreases, um, the market becomes ever more lucrative for the syndicate leaders, the brokers, and the high-end sellers. But for the little people, so to say, the poachers and the smugglers and their communities, it's kind of a lifestyle of diminishing returns because the risks that they're taking as the product becomes less available increase and eventually the product will disappear entirely. And I've said before that the high-end sellers and brokers, that's what they want because once the product disappears entirely, they, you know, they're sitting on their stockpiles and investments and they make more money out of it. But those on the ground, the poachers who are risking their lives, um, do not benefit at all from that. In fact, it's the opposite. As the product becomes less available, it just becomes more dangerous for them. And unless it's not at all a sustainable lifestyle for them. And often they end up dead or in prison, which we'll talk about um, later in the episode. So lastly, of course, the market couldn't possibly be as successful as it is without the corruption of government leaders um, on every level, from the local to global, from the local to international level. And without political pockets and vested interests in the market, uh, it just wouldn't be as successful as it is. And this is such a problem that the London Conference on the Illegal Wildlife Trade held in 2014 featured corruption as one of its major problems to solve. Uh, we will definitely be talking more about the London Conference, the 2014 London Conference um, next episode. But uh, just very briefly, it was a declaration signed by 46 countries on goals, tenets and laws to protect wildlife from trade. Um, so it's so corruption in the government is, is such an issue that um, it's just an international agreement that it needs to be solved. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, unfortunately there, because this is all illegal and underground, there's not like that, this, that part of it, this corruption is, is harder to quantify. Um, but I would be willing to bet that, um, 
we, our minds would be blown if this was all like revealed to us mm-hmm. because yeah, that's all I'll say right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay. Now let's talk about enforcement because we promised we would talk about that. Um, unfortunately the current, um, and the best way to combat poaching is through law enforcement. And I don't mean, I don't say unfortunately because, um, law enforcement isn't isn't good or anything but there's there's other solutions that just aren't currently as effective and historically just straight up law enforcement has been the approach and that's what's stuck and i think that that's also oh my gosh (laughs) there's a baltimore oil at my bird's back (laughs) oh my gosh it's like a frenzy of birds there's an inca dove Oh my gosh. Sorry. The <laughs> Orioles have been pouring in because of this northerly wind. Anyways. Oh, oh. <laughs> so beautiful. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to the issue at hand. Um, law enforcement has just been, you know, that's how people have controlled poaching in the past. You know, we have to treat this. Um, well, I mean, it is a crime, so it makes sense mm-hmm. that law yeah. enforcement would be the first option. But I think that people focus too much on the, 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 like the legal enforcement of this with law enforcement officers, you know, just because, you know, elephants live in a protected area doesn't mean that they're actually protected. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even though there's armed scouts, there patrolling and stuff that, that doesn't mean that the elephants are not going to be killed. Um, so it all defend it all depends on how effective the law enforcement is in the particular area, and this is where it gets kind of messy because different different countries or different national parks or different areas they all have different resources, and so you know law enforcement across regions and across the world isn't always going to be equal. There are some recently there's been these things called wildlife enforcement networks that have been um, established and they're basically these international collaborations to share best practices and lessons um, to promote operational effectiveness of law enforcement and to just enhance cooperation so that, you know, everyone, it's not every man for himself in this situation. Um, there's also this international consortium on combating wildlife crime, which is just an even larger collaborative effort um, between CITES, which we will <laughs> we keep pushing everything off till the yeah. next episode. But we'll be talking about CITES in the next episode. Um, it's all going to come to a head with the yeah. wildlife trafficking episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, this consortium is a, a collaborative effort between CITES, Interpol, the UN Office on Drugs and crime, which I think also, you know, highlights how big of an issue this is. Mm-hmm. Um, the World Bank and the World Customs Organi- Organization are also involved in this. And again, it's just to bring coordinated support to this issue of global wildlife law enforcement. Um, and that consortium has been was established in 2010, and they're also they're not only focused on wildlife; they're also involved in the plant harvesting and trade like we we talked about um 
but anyway, so there are the point is that there are these efforts to coordinate and collaborate on law enforcement and but that's only been in the past few years and there's still this um i don't know sort of like people in certain areas are sort of indoctrinated with mm-hmm. this certain model of law enforcement yeah um that like I said, isn't always going to be effective just mm-hmm. because there's protection there doesn't mean that animals aren't going to be killed. Um, so anyways, just to, some statistics um, to kind of show the um, inconsistencies in enforcement and arrests and prosecution. Um, so these are, these stats are from the year 2013. Um, so in Kenya, we have, 1,549 poacher suspects that were arrested and prosecuted. Um, in South Africa, we have 343 poachers arrested, um, and some of those were killed, like in bat, uh, you know, in the firing line. Mm-hmm. Um, so hugely different numbers, and that has to do with enforcement. Yeah. Um, Kenya, we have 59 rhinos that were poached in 2013. 302 elephants that were poached. South Africa, we have 1,004 rhinos that were poached and no elephants that were recorded poached. And so it, you know, you can't really relate this to enforcement, but there's just different demand and these countries have different species. There's just more rhinos in South Africa. But I think that, you know, in Kenya, we have a ton of poachers being arrested and not as many animals being poached. And then South mm-hmm. Africa, we don't have that many being arrested and a ton of animals being poached. And I think it, um, I think it could be related back to just these different ways that these countries enforce poaching and, and their approach to it. And actually, we'll, we'll talk about this at the end, but um, Kenya is in talks of giving the death penalty for um, poaching. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's not really related, but I just wanted to say that. <laughs> Because these, these countries just take different approaches. And that's yeah. mm-hmm. basically what I'm trying to say in all this blabbering. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of challenges to enforcing wildlife laws. Um, because like we have said, and I want to say again, poaching is a crime. Illegally killing wildlife is a crime just as much as whatever stealing something is a crime. Um, and so that's where the law enforcement part comes into it. So starting from the top, um, one of the biggest challenges is just inadequate legislation. You know, these countries have either vague, I, th- I think most countries have some form of wildlife protection, but you know, a lot of it is pretty vague. And in the United States, we have like, some of the most intense wildlife legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, so comparing us to other countries, it's, you know, there's no comparison really, but you know, these laws just vary in strength or even in just the understanding of law enforcement officers of these legislation, um, because they're just not, you know, trained in understanding the laws they're trained in. Okay. This is what you do. You arrest people that are killing animals, but understanding um, the importance of certain practices 
on enforcement in the field so that it can actually be brought to court and, you know, these people can be tried according to the law, but Mm -hmm. when they're, you know, messing up the crime scene or they're not following certain procedures, it just makes it so that, you know, this can't be brought to, to court. So it's, you know, it's really essential for officers to know the laws and also just the legal implications of what they do and how they handle a situation in the field. Not just because, you know, oh, so that poachers can go to jail, but so they can understand the, the, um, yeah, I guess just the greater, greater implications of this poaching. Um, mm-hmm. Not that just this person has a gun, so I'm arresting them. Okay, so yeah, inadequate legislation and legal preparation for people in the field that are dealing with poachers. That's, that's the first challenge. Also, the lack of necessary equipment is a big challenge because... Like I said, the availability of resources in different areas is is different, and some places just have almost no resources, so they can't buy the necessary equipment, let alone pay a sufficient amount of anti-poaching officers or what have you. And, and in a lot of these countries, again, generalizing, um, but wildlife law enforcement comes in last place when it comes to you know, budget allocation because, you know, people are more important than wildlife. And so they need to address social issues. And I mean, this is a social issue, but most mm-hmm. people don't recognize it as that. Unfortunately, that's another thing where this inadequate legislation or just the understanding on a government level, of how big this issue is, how these governments fall short. But yeah, so wildlife law enforcement, it, it comes in last place, you know, where I was, where I lived in Kafui National Park in Zambia, the anti-poaching patrols don't even ca- carry satellite phones. So when they encounter or apprehend a poacher, they, you know, sometimes they have radios, but they have to be within, you know, range. And so just communication, even just telling people, we have a poacher, we just apprehended a poacher, found an elephant carcass, like the delay in that is because they, d- they don't have enough resources, something like a satellite phone. Um, for communicating they have these like super antiquated guns and just bottom of the barrel field gear and it's like that not only just in Kifui it's like that in a lot of places Um, you know in a lot of places like South Africa where there's a lot of money behind these anti-poaching for protecting rhinos or whatever they have like the best of the best field equipment and I really I mean I honestly think that these anti-poaching scouts, they should have better or just as good equipment as us as like researchers Mm -hmm. because, you know, okay, I'm going into whatever study lions. I'm just collecting data not to, you know, de-emphasize the importance of that, but these people are actually like keeping lions alive or whatever animal. So it, it just is backwards to me that these people aren't, sufficiently supplied mm-hmm. for something that's more, keeping these lions alive is more important than um collecting data on the lions because the only reason we're collecting data on the lions is because we haven't been able to keep them alive yeah. <laughs> we need to understand how they're declining and how we can protect them and um so anyways i think that that is one huge area that enforcement can improve on and you know in a lot of places ngos and stuff come in and provide equipment that they need and 
that's awesome. But this isn't always the case. Also, they just might have limited training opportunities because, again, it has to do with money. You know, they there's if there's no one with expertise in this, they can't hire someone to come in. You know, they have difficulty accessing modern enforcement tools like intelligence gathering or forensic science support. And, you know, developing nations don't always have people with these expertise in these areas of law enforcement. So a lot of times out-of-country experts have to be brought in to train, like, anti-poaching scouts, which is is fine. Um, But I think it's critical to establish experts in-country so that this knowledge and this practice of law enforcement is sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, if there's not money to pay this, whatever expensive expert to to come in and train people, then who's going to be training them? You know, you need people there that are experienced and, and can do this in the future without bringing in people from other countries. I was watching, I looked at, saw this video about this paramilitary anti-poaching force called the Akashinga in Zimbabwe, Zambezi Valley. And it's, it's really cool. You should look it up. Um, mm-hmm. It's this, training program specifically for women and these women are pretty badass um and but they've been trained by this guy who this military expert who you know headed up like iraq special police training academy and trained paramilitary forces and that's that's great and you know i'm not diminishing the what that program is doing but you know this militarization of wildlife law enforcement is um i think it's just gotten away from us Mm -hmm. it's just grown so big and i'm not being um structured with how i'm discussing this at (laughs) all but i just this is just coming to my head Um, yeah because yeah i guess just the fact that having to bring this is this is a case that's not unique to that program and i saw it in kafui and stuff and that's how we have to you know, that's how you have to train people is having experts come in. But how are we this far into it? And this is still what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. this paramilitary um, type law enforcement has been going on for decades, especially in Africa. And there still isn't sufficient training of, you know, the nationals in that country. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Sometimes I think that, you know, a lot of NGOs, they want to be able to have their hand in it always. And I think that's wrong. If you set these countries and these areas and these people on the right path, you know, they, they need to, they shouldn't always be relying on someone else to be coming in and training them and solving their problems is basically yeah. what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways. So yeah. So that brings me to the next point, you know, NGOs often drive law enforcement efforts. And I think the more they focus on, local capacity building, the more successful they're going to be and just the more um, that I applaud their efforts. Um, in Zambia, one of, actually, well, they operate in Zambia, but this is one of the bigger NGOs that does law enforcement. Um, Conservation South Luangwa in eastern Zambia, which the project I worked for worked with them. They put a huge emphasis on community-based law enforcement and their model has just been super successful in getting local buy-in and, and training people that are in the villages there 
And so they support local scouts. Um, they provide equipment and technical support and training. Um, they have like detection dogs that you know local people are trained to use. They do anti-poaching patrols and reactive patrols when someone hears about a poaching. They do aerial surveillance, anti-snaring. Um, all of this, it's not like um, it's all these you know, Westerners or white people that have come in and done this. It's all these people, these Zambian people that have been trained Mm -hmm. to do this. And so much so that um, Rachel McRobb, who is the founder of Conservation South Luangwa, and she's a really awesome person. um, She was recognized by, as a finalist for the Tusk Award in 2016, which is a huge conservation award. Um, So I think that just demonstrates the success of that program. Um, but again, I, I think that that's the key to focus on this community based yeah. approach to law enforcement rather than just, you know, paramilitary bringing in these foreign mm-hmm. snipers and stuff to train, even though that works, that's not a sustainable solution. Yeah, I think yeah, I totally agree. The, the community, the community members need to see themselves in these efforts they need to see familiar faces. They need to see that um, that they can contribute. If their neighbor can contribute, they can too. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree that, yeah, community, it, the answer is it, it really does go down to the community level. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times if these people from the community are whatever the leaders of anti-poaching units, you know, they're members of the community, and so they – it might be easier for them to get intel about poachers or, I mean, I've heard of, I don't know where, or maybe I saw it in a documentary or something, but, you know, situations where, you know, they know that their friend is poaching and they can go to them in a personal, personal way and approach it like that. Um, There's just, yeah, it's just better all around Mm -hmm. um, for how the situations are going to be handled. And I think just with, the level of poaching that occurs because with all that community buy-in, there's probably going to be less poaching when they realize that their neighbor is a, a ranger or, or when they just simply realize, you know, get the facts about this and mm-hmm. how negative this is um, or how they can benefit from wildlife. Um, yep. Anyways. So also just, you know, poor governance. Again, this is the root of, the issue in most developing nations, like Mariana already mentioned, just due to corruption or even denial of the issues. I mean, a lot of these politicians in wildlife-rich countries, they don't want to acknowledge that their wildlife populations are declining and that it's going to affect their economies. And that's just ignorance, and that's just going to lead to, to trouble in the future for their economy, really. I think... Also, it's important for um, prosecutors and you know the judiciary in these developing countries to just appreciate the seriousness of these crimes because then that's going to influence how poachers are tried, mm-hmm. especially if the laws are vague and the law enforcement hasn't followed procedure or whatever. Um, and you know, a, a lot of these challenges that I'm talking about make it impossible for local law enforcement to keep up with this well-organized poaching industry, which a lot of times puts the burden of enforcement on 
the local people, poor rural people, you know, again, the, it's hard to, to completely generalize across the board, but, you know, when these well-organized poaching syndicates have access to a lot of resources or access to, you know, people in leadership roles where they can, you know, bribe people or whatever, that means that these local people that are poaching for subsistence or, you know, to sell meat or something just to feed their family, that's where the burden of law enforcement is going to be on them. And that doesn't mean that that's wrong, that those, the laws being enforced on those people, they are just as accountable, but it just means that the very um, well-organized poachers are not going to be caught just because local law enforcement can't keep up because, because it's basically not a fair match. Mm-hmm. But there's, there is a lot of new tech, a lot of new technology, some of which we, I think we talked about in our technology episode um, a while back that is, you know, helping that's becoming available and helping law enforcement in these developing areas, especially, I guess I, I should have mentioned this, that it's not like these, a lot of poachers are working in, you know, Grand Canyon national park where there's like lots of t- tourists around and there's a, there's a high presence of people some of these places are just, you know, people don't ever step. These are a lot wilder places in Asia or South America or Africa than we have in the United States. So that is also just a huge challenge for law enforcement because how do you cover those areas? And a lot of these um, anti-poaching units are just covering areas on foot. And again, when you have limited resources, it makes it hard for you to cover that much ground when you can't even pay for a sufficient amount of rangers. So, the, you know, all these challenges are sort of intermingled. But like I said, there's a lot of new technologies that are uh, starting to be used that can kind of help with this issue. So one example, and again, this is in South Africa that has a much more, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? They have a lot more resources to combat poaching in South Africa, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but in areas where, and it, for those of you that don't know, everything in South Africa is fenced because wildlife is privately owned. So they have the borders to these reserves or national parks or whatever. Um, in some places, they put up thermal cameras or thermal sensors so that you know there doesn't always have to be someone patrolling that border when a poacher breaches that fence. It alerts them. They can go in and find them. Um, drones is a big one that's used across Africa. And, you know, now that I'm thinking of this, we talk so much about Africa, um, Mm -hmm. which there's nothing wrong with that, but you don't hear about, and I haven't seen anything about the use of these technologies in other places. I think India is probably another place where there's a lot of law enforcement that is, you know, this, these situations are relevant, but you know, I think of somewhere like Vietnam, like in the mm-hmm. forest. Yeah. I've never read anything about those sort of efforts and what's available to them. But something like drones obviously isn't going to work in the rainforest. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, the, the environment also creates different challenges. Anyways, one last technology that I know is being used in a lot of cases and would apply to a place like Vietnam is the, are these devices that are always recording noise and they like detect gunshots and alert rangers 
when a gunshot is going off so then they can go to that area and look for poachers. Um, so anyways, these things are becoming available, but that doesn't, um, hopefully that means that enforcement will be better, but that doesn't change the fact that in, that wildlife law enforcement is highly militarized. And like I already said, this, unfortunately this is the, the best way for, to combat poaching. And, you know, that, so that one, um, training program in Zimbabwe where I said they're training women. I remember that guy, that ex sniper or whatever that came in and, and was training them in the interview, in the little video, he said that his expertise is in counter insurgency warfare, <laughs> <laughs> which I think that quote alone describes just how militarized this is. Yeah. But, you know, relating back to what Mariana was talking about, how this market works, this is really what's necessary because it is because it's such a huge industry. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of these militarized training programs, like I said, provide jobs for local people and get them invested in things. Um, so I don't want to downplay the effectiveness of enforcement, but, you know, there's, a, there's non-military solutions that are more sustainable. And I think we need to head in that direction more. It is happening in a lot of places. I don't think we'll ever get rid of this sort of militarized law enforcement, but recognizing that there are better solutions after all these years. So, and I guess I should also say, you know, without this paramilitary anti-poaching, where would wildlife populations currently stand? So mm -hmm. it has, it has served its purpose and, and done its, done a great job. But I think if we focused on these non-military solutions earlier on, we might be a little better off. Um, so, of course, these non-military solutions are these stereotypical things like raise awareness and educate people. Um, this is like a, you know, the standard solution that everyone can spout out. But it really does have merit because, like we keep talking about, a lot of these people that are doing the on-the-ground poaching are, a lot of times they're uneducated or they're unaware of the benefits they can gain from, you know, keeping these wildlife populations around and especially focusing on the younger generation because they're the future. Um, and that, that seems like so duh, but really when you think about it, um, and that's, that's sort of the reason why I think we haven't, that's why we're still doing this education and awareness stuff and why a lot of this situation in poaching hasn't changed because the generation currently that is doing the poaching, they didn't receive this sort of education and, when they were young. And so it's going to take until they are gone. I think, I think it's going to take their children. Their generation is, is going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. and that's the generation that is currently growing up. So yeah, when, when they learn about wildlife and natural resources, that's going to influence how they treat it in the future. Another huge thing is just creating alternate economies for local poachers, because these are the you know, these local people are the ones that are fueling the larger scale industry because they're the ones that are on the ground. And when you think about it, and I don't think that they think about it because, you know, they're just trying to get food on their table for this week or for tonight or whatever. Poaching, a poaching livelihood is 
absolutely unsustainable, yeah. especially at the rate that things are going. So it's, I think it's key for people, local people to understand this and for them to be taught this, that the real value is in keeping these wildlife around. Um, ecotourism is, you know, the biggest and most attractive way to demonstrate the value of wildlife because it incentivizes protecting wildlife, which I think is the key strategy in getting people to care about wildlife, especially when they don't have an education where they can understand ecological value. I think that getting them to understand ecological value is important, but they're not going to understand that up front. And if you want to solve the issue sooner rather than later, you need to incentivize the protection of wildlife. And I think when you look a lot of look at a lot of these models that have been successful, this is what they've done, such as like community-based strategies like in Namibia, which we're going to definitely do an episode, yeah. <laughs> episode on. Absolutely. I've, I've mentioned this um, sort of uh, incentive, incentive uh, these incentive programs before, and a, a lot of people are – a lot of people can be cynical about it. Like, Oh, these people should just care about the wildlife, um, inherently, you know, instead of just requiring incentives, but that's so naive. Uh, that's not the way the world works. And when you're talking about, um, like Jonah has been saying, when you're talking about the, the socioeconomics of, uh, of these people, um, when you're talking about the socioeconomics of the communities in which poachers live, um, they, they're not even thinking about valuing the inherent, um, about inherently valuing wildlife. They're thinking about staying alive. So incentives, I don't think, I don't think you should be cynical about incentives because, um, that's, that's really naive. I think incentives, creative incentives, especially are, are really important for, uh, for conservation efforts. Yeah. And incentives like, okay the the benefit of ecotourism like mm -hmm. that is that's probably one of the easiest solutions because currently that industry of ecotourism is so large because you know us in the western world we want to go to these other countries and see amazing wildlife like in africa um and you know a lot of places that have high levels of poaching also have high levels of biodiversity, which makes them more attractive for ecotourism. So that's just, that's just the first, that's just a, I think that should be the go-to solution because people can understand it and they can gain from it the most. So there's a lot of other benefits from, you know, keeping wildlife around. And I think, I think that we could go more into all this if we have, or when we have an episode on, just community-based strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with a definite focus on Namibia because they've done a lot of – they've done this right, basically. And the rest of Africa should – you know, the, while the rest of Africa is still stuck in this antiquated, you know, military militarization of anti-poaching, Namibia has really stepped it up and been successful with this community-based strategy. Because it makes people, it, it gets, just gets buy-in, basically, is this, the summary of it. And then, you know, like I said, after you have that initial buy-in, then people start to learn more about the wildlife and 
how they can indirectly benefit from them rather than just, you know, making money from tourism or what have you. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and as you've, as you've mentioned Jonah a couple of times already, um, this is the, the current solutions, especially the, the militarized solutions are, they're almost, you could almost call them traditional. It's just something that they've been doing for a long time and they think it works and they're just going to stick with it. And on that note, uh, I wanted to briefly touch on the just, on the justice of law. I said briefly in the notes, but it's like five paragraphs. Um, <laughs> well, they're, they're short paragraphs. <laughs> this is, I'm like super passionate about this issue, but, uh, you have to ask yourselves how deeply do poachers trust the law? And what motivates their willingness to comply with the law? Um, so the laws and punishments bring, being brought upon poachers presently um, have been based on the premise that citizens will comply with a law for fear of the consequences of noncompliance. Um, and that's just a basic sort of law, legal justice tenet. It's basically deterrence justice. And that's how m- most law works. Um, you know, you do something bad to get put in prison. Uh, things like uh, the the death penalty, you, you commit murder, you know, the, the state will kill you, things like that. So that's been kind of the, uh, the status quo in terms of justice uh, for poaching. But if the punishment for poaching is either imprisonment or death, um, you know, you, you just have those two options as a punishment. How, how can a poacher uh, trying to just trying to put food on his table and trying to make a living, how could they find that just like that? That's, that's, ex- they, they would find that extreme and they wouldn't see the correlation um, of justice between their crime and the punishment, especially um, given how many poachers have, are just shot to death in the field. So I, I feel that the law, the law has to do a better job acknowledging the undeniable truth that the majority of poachers come from environments of poverty, disenfranchisement, and social marginalization. And a law could never be considered just by those it's being laid on if that law only serves to increase the social injustice these people are already facing. So why would a poacher voluntarily comply with this kind of justice if they find it inherently unjust? And this is the justness of law that... Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about. Yeah, so also you have to consider, well, I mean, basically, like you said, what the, how the, how the poacher views the law and the risks of actually poaching. And when you look at, uh, there's, there's certain studies, like there's one study that I'm thinking of that um, interviewed poachers in Okavango's, the Okavango Delta in Botswana. And, they asked people like about the risk related to poaching and the, the risk is so low because you're in such a vast area and there's, you know, there's a low density of enforcement basically. So the risk is worth the reward. And that, that doesn't really tie into to justice, but I think that's just something that we haven't or justness rather that mm-hmm. doesn't apply to, to justness really, but that's something that we haven't mentioned that, you know, some listeners might be thinking, well, there's all these laws and there's all these anti-poaching rangers out there. 
why would poachers want to risk their life or whatever? And they, they are in a lot of cases, especially somewhere like South Africa, Mm -hmm. but a lot of places it's, the risk is almost zero because they know that there's no law enforcement there and they can get away with it because it's such a remote area or something like that. And anyways, so I just wanted to add that. And I also wanted to add that that's where I think Kenya, they're, the potential for them to list the death penalty for poaching, you know, they, I think their approach to that is, Oh, wildlife is our, is our entire economy and industry and we need it and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. But that's, they're not understanding. Um, what am I trying to say? Hmm. They're not understanding basically what you said that, that yeah. that's, that that's not just, and right. that, yeah that the poachers aren't going to view that as just, I don't know if that's necessarily going to, it depends on the area, but you know, if it's an area that they, a poacher sees as it not being risky to poach, then that's not going to affect them. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea is also like, Oh, if we, we threaten this, then they'll, people will be less likely to poach. But if you need to get food for your family, you're going to, you know, if your options are not getting food for your family and starving to death, or risking it, a relatively low risk of getting caught, which one are you going to choose? So they're not really understanding that dynamic of it when they just say, oh, we're going we're gonna to give the death penalty to poachers. I mm-hmm. think that's just a lack of understanding of this, the heart of this issue and these people that are involved in this issue on the ground. Yeah, I agree. And if you just kill every poacher, you know, that you... A po- you know, these poachers have family, these poachers have communities. And so you're failing them. If, if, if you call this governance and if you call this justice, you're failing big, you, you're failing whole communities and whole families by just deciding to, that capital punishment is the only answer. Yeah, exactly. And that I, again, I think I said it in the last episode, I, I think that people come first and are more important than wildlife. That doesn't mean that wildlife have to they get uh basically humans get priority but that doesn't mean that they our interest can't align mm-hmm. and this the issue of like the death penalty for poaching i think is just absurd because you're saying that an animal's life is more valuable than a person's life which you know, that's my own opinion, and a lot of people think that whatever their dog's life is more important than <laughs> their families or whatever. And you see this, I think, a lot on like social media when people, you know, have these outcries about um, an animal being poached, like Cecil the lion, string yeah. him up, like kill the dentist, and it's like, okay, yeah, that guy is obviously like. A, a loser, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, and there's a lot of things wrong with him. Mm-hmm. But does he deserve to die because he shot a lion? Right. Um, yeah, I don't. I do not think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the moral logic behind that is really messed up. Yeah. Um, well, I th- I don't think there is a moral logic behind that. Is basically what I'm saying. And people people on the internet are the best at this basically (laughs) yeah of moral of being morally illogic yes i agree (laughs) illogical 
Anyways. Um, so, what else? Yeah, oh, um... Yeah, so I that's, that's yeah, I think that's it. So that's um, basically a quick rundown, or as quick as we could possibly humanly make it, of the market and um, of enforcement. And next, uh, hopefully next week, unless yet another thing pops up in my life, um, <laughs> uh, we'll be talking more about uh, about the trade industry. Um, so yeah, that's. That's about it for for um, this part two. Shall we give a shout out to you, GoFundMe? So, instead of doing a sustainability tip this week, um. I just want to, uh, whatever, buzz market. <laughs> My master's project that I'm currently trying to fund um, on saddle bills, which are a type of stork in Africa. You should look them up. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more commonly called saddle build stork. Um, and I'm trying to do the first ever study on them because they've never been studied before and we don't know you know, what their, how their population is doing that it's basically their current conservation status has been made up. And so they're not considered threatened at all, but we don't know because no one's ever, there's, there's no data on them. But in addition to, you know, focusing on the first ever scientific study of the species, um, we're going to be using them as a model to look at wetland connectivity in Western Zambia, just because wetlands, First of all, no one's ever looked at wetland connectivity in Southern Africa, but also they've just been, those habitats have been very degraded in Africa. And historically, the focus on conservation has just been, let's just establish national parks and protect land and not really thinking about it as an ecosystem, just thinking about it as patches of land. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of effort, go, a lot. currently there's a lot of effort going into studying um, landscape connectivity for species like elephants and lions and stuff, but no one's, you know, no one really thinks about wetlands and the importance of wetland connectivity for water bird species, which in Western Zambia, there are a lot of water bird species and a lot of wetlands, some of which are in protected areas and some of which are in unprotected areas. And so um, by putting satellite tags on these storks, on juveniles specifically when they're leaving their parents, we want to look at um, how well these habitats are connected and um, just the health of that ecosystem on a landscape level. So the point of all that is that it's very difficult to get funding for an animal that isn't um, an elephant or rhino or lion like we keep talking about (laughs) because those are the species that people care about the most. And when an species is considered not threatened it's hard to find funding for it even if that status is completely unfounded in science Mm -hmm. which is the case for the saddle bill so i started a gofundme campaign um in hopes to just raise some funding for this project specifically the money and the gofundme campaign would go towards paying for food and the salaries of 
people working in the field. So I'll be one of the, well, I mean, the food will go towards me, but I won't be getting those salaries. Um, but some people from Zambia will be helping me with my work over there. And so this would go towards paying them to help me with the field work and then also paying for our food while we're in the field there. So if you feel so inclined to donate to that, um, my GoFundMe campaign, it's called Conserving Wetland Birds in Africa. Please contribute even $5 helps. Um, every little bit helps. But even more importantly than that, um, just spreading the word about it because mm -hmm. maybe it eventually it'll get to uh, uh, Bill Gates or something. Yeah. <laughs> You know, everyone just cares about lions and elephants. Um, <laughs> anyways, but just I just wanted to kind of share that here just because it's, even with this campaign, um, it's difficult to raise money for this project. And the money, the amount of money that I raise is going to determine whether this project happens or not. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, please look it up. Um, I think I... I think I already shared it on the Instagram. Oh, okay. When yeah. I first made it, we'll post um, again. But though. yeah, yeah, and you can go to um, just go to GoFundMe and search "conserving wetland birds in Africa." That's mm -hmm. the name of the campaign. So, anyways, yeah. that's my tip for being sustainable this <laughs> this week: c contributing to projects that don't get funding. <laughs> If you guys are listening to this podcast, um, obviously you care about conservation. So um, if ever there was a better cause, um, here's a conservation cause for you. So, yeah. And even if you're listening to this months from when we record it, yeah. I will definitely be taking donations all the way up until I'm about to get on a plane to go to Zambia in May. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So closing. Yes. Uh, time for closing. Um, <laughs> uh, so closing time. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so ideally, uh, ideally, we could do an even longer series on poaching in order to cover all the facets more completely, but. I'm not sure even I would want to listen to so many consecutive episodes on the same topic. So, <laughs> so we are trying to be brief and we're going to try to close this series out with a final discussion on the wildlife trade for part three. As Jonah said, um, this will kind of just bring everything together, bring the whole picture um, together for you um, on the scope of this of this thing. So we'll also, uh, we'll be posting another request for comments or questions on poaching on our Facebook page because nobody posted anything. <laughs> I think our bigger audience is on Instagram. Oh, <laughs> Just because okay, it's more I'm of like so, a public. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. I, I asked thing. on Instagram and no one said, I think okay. the challenge with Instagram is that people just only look at the photos. Right. They don't even look at what I write mm -hmm. because then they'll just, they'll just comment and be like, Great feed. Follow my page. I'm like, you obviously didn't read this. <laughs> You're supposed to go listen to our podcast, not look at our photos only. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So <sighs> however you want to connect with us, Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah, please, please do. Um, we would love to uh, feature some of your comments and questions on here. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially if we like didn't cover something about poaching that you want us to cover from wherever you're from. 
as I know, we are getting an increasingly international audience. Mm-hmm. I have noticed because for those of you that don't know, we can look at all of the activity and where it comes from. Um, so, yeah, just anything you want to tell us about poaching or our podcast in general, even if you think we suck. <laughs> so check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okey doke. End. <laughs> <laughs>